from PRX. We have a favor to ask. One of our advertisers is conducting a survey, and we'd be grateful for your help answering a few of their questions. It'll take less than 10 minutes of your time, and your participation helps our show. You can go to slatestudy.com right now to complete the short survey. Thanks. Today on Studio 360... Pedro Almodovar is a very tough director. It's not easy working with him. Why Antonio Banderas nevertheless keeps returning to his longtime collaborator. He managed to bring out of me a character that I didn't even know I had inside. The actor on his long, complicated relationship and new film with Pedro Almodovar. Plus, how the Joker's makeup has evolved. From Cesar Romero... Hello, kiddies. Meet the Joker. To Heath Ledger. Well, you look nervous. Is it the scars? Now to Joaquin Phoenix. When you bring me out, can you introduce me as Joker? My symposium with Hollywood makeup legend Rick Baker. That's ahead on Studio 360 right after this. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. It's Kurt Anderson. That was in 1980. I was 90. I was working at that time at the National Theater in Spain. I got long hair, a little mustache, and a fly beard. <laughs> That's the actor Antonio Banderas talking about meeting this guy in Madrid, a young film director named Pedro Amadova. And uh, I was outside of the theater in a coffee shop with some of the other actors of the play. And this man with a red briefcase appeared over there, sit with us without even introducing himself. He knew some of the members of the company. And so he started throwing this monologue that was very funny. I don't remember what he talked about, but I remember that I laughed. He was ingenious, fast. He used a lot of irony and certain cynicism, too. And suddenly, well, after 20 minutes of giving us this uh, homily, <laughs> he stood up to leave. He looked at me says, you should do movies. You've got a very romantic face. You should be in movies. Goodbye. Boom. And he left. And I asked somebody, who is this guy? And they said to me, his name is Pedro Almodovar. He made one movie, and he will never make another one. <laughs> I saw him again like three or four weeks after that, and he came to see the play, and at the end... They came to my dressing room and he offered me a movie called Labyrinth of Passion. And I, at that time, I, I never did a movie before. So I said to him, basically, I am a theater actor. I have never done a movie. I don't know if I can answer to expectations. And he said, oh, if you do theater, you will be fine in movies. I will direct you. Don't worry. Everything's going to be fine. I said, okay, sure. Since then, Antonio Banderas and Pedro Almodovar have made a bunch of movies together. Five, pretty much back-to-back in the 1980s in Spain, but then a two-decade hiatus while Banderas pursued his Hollywood career. Philadelphia with Tom Hanks, Evita, The Mask of Zorro, the Spy Kids movies, Puss in Boots, and on and on. 
Now he has again reunited with the director who discovered him for the terrific new film Pain and Glory, their eighth. He plays an older, complicated filmmaker, a character closely based on Amadovar. The Amadovar-esque character in Pain and Glory has medical problems, a heroin habit, flashes back a lot to his childhood, and reunites with long-lost friends and lovers and collaborators. I, I would describe the film as uh, the story of a man uh, who is an artist, who is a movie director, who actually is going back in time in order to uh, close certain wounds that were left open to reconciliate with himself, to come to terms with certain people. And, um, and basically, the movie is that. In the middle of that, there is a reflection about art, about movies in particular, and about life itself. Right. You, too, have known each other for almost 40 years. So was playing this character inspired by him, this version of him, when he came to you and said, hey, you want to do this? Was that enticing, scary, awkward, <laughs> what? All of, all of it. <laughs> well, uh, it, it was um, relieving to me. Because I, the, the last movie I did with him was nine years ago. It was The Skin I Live In. This ghastly, weird vengeance movie about a plastic surgeon. Yeah. Dolly Almodovar. Dolly Almodovar. And before than that, for 22 years, we didn't work together. Yes. So I arrived to The Skin I Live In. And I'm going to just go back to nine years because the creation of this character started there without even me knowing. You know, when I got there at the rehearsal, because Pedro Almodovar is one of those movie directors who rehearsed, and rehearsed for a long period of time. Weeks? Just, weeks, yeah, a month, approximately, you know, prior to principal photography. But I arrived there after two, tw 22 years in America. You know, I have learned a, a bunch of things. Pedro, you know, I just uh, behave in front of the camera in a different way. I'm more secure. I can use my voice in this way. And, and after a I'm week... I'm a grown-up. You know, Exactly. And so after a week of rehearsal, he said to me, you know, all of those things that you have learned there, I cannot use. <laughs> those are things that are not really for me. So where are you? He asked me. <laughs> and at that time, instead of actually answering that question or try to answer that question, I thought, oh, my God, why he's so harsh on me? You know, I'm, I'm going to go my path. I'm just going to use, you know, all the things that I have learned just to find my character. And, you know, but, you know, it creates certain tension on the set. Anyway, we finished that shooting, and then I saw the movie in the Toronto Film Festival, and I saw it, and I couldn't believe that he managed to bring out of me a character that I didn't even know I had inside. So at that point, I said, oh, I think I should be a little bit more humble than that. Yeah. I should open my ears and my eyes and listen to people, that, I, especially people that I trust. And I trust Pedro Almodovar. I started doing movies with him almost 40 years ago. Am I going to have an opportunity again just to work with him? And a decade later? You did. Yeah. And their opportunity came one day that he called me on the phone. He said, I'm going to send you this script called Pain and Glory. And uh, you are going to find a bunch of uh, references that have to do with our life, you know, in the 80s and the movies that we did at that time. And you're going to find very familiar characters in there. And so I called him after I read the script and I loved it. And I said, listen, I am going, uh, you know, clean. I am not going to use all the tools that I have been using this year. I want to just start something absolutely new. I want to start from the scratch with you. Uh -huh. And I'm going to listen to you. And I want to know, basically, why do you want to do this movie? And why did you call me to play 
you. <laughs> so in terms of the character, the Amadovar character you play, it doesn't particularly resemble him in the way he moves or talks? No. No, I, you know, he surrounds the characters in the physicality of it, you know. The hair is very similar to the hair that he uses, you know, the, in the, all the costumes, the colors. He got an exact replica of his apartment in Madrid. Right. But then he came to the point in which he said to me one day in rehearsal, if you want to use some of my mannerism for the character, you can do it. And I said, no, they are, I, we are going to stop in there. I don't think I should do that. I think I should create the character from the inside out. If I just try to imitate you, it's not going to be a performance. It's going to be an imitation. I don't think it's the right way to attack this. We are going to lose points there. Right. We should just do another type of creation there. And he says, okay. So we started just working in that uh, aspect in a completely different way. How is working with him, the actual work on the set, making the movie, how is that different with him than all the dozens of other directors you've worked with? Pedro Almodovar is a very tough director. It's not easy. Working with him, he's very demanding, very meticulous. He knows exactly what he wants, and he's not going to let you go in different directions. You can bring things, but uh, at the end... You know, you have to go and understand what he's trying to do and get in a parallel line with him. If you don't do that, you're going to have a hard time. Does he get better performances out of you than other directors? I think so. I think so. But because he he doesn't allow you to go off the truth. I mean, and, and, and especially now. I, think, I suppose there is age, too. You know, there is a moment in, uh, when you get to a certain age, and I am in that place, too, already, in which there is only space for the truth. Only space for the truth. You know, it, <laughs> everything else is, starts uh, looking stupid and ridiculous, so you're just searching for that. Because time is short. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Another thing that struck, strikes me as interesting is this character that you play uh, is gay, you are not. Right. Uh, but many of the characters you've played for, Pedro, who is gay, are gay. Yeah. Because why? I don't know, but I don't have any problem with that. Yeah. I, never, I never did have a problem. Do gay people now because have a problem with that because straight people aren't supposed to play gay people these days? I don't know. I received an award in 2006 by the, uh, it was called the GLAD Award, by the gay community yeah. in yeah. Los Angeles because of the way that I represented them. Right. And I am very proud of that yeah. work. And so I tried to do it with, uh, you know, flair and, you know, and try to just give my soul and my heart right. to them. In Hollywood, you have been cast, you are cast as variously this mysterious romantic leading man a lot and an action hero, Zorro, uh, The Expendables, or spoofs of those, like one of my favorite films of yours, Puss in Boots, mm -hmm. uh, Spy Kids. Um, but then, and so not to say you're typecast, but you know, a lot of your films are those two kinds of characters. Whereas yeah. with Amadovar, there's this incredible range of characters you've played over these, you yeah. know, 35, 40 years. Uh, ailing filmmaker, kicking heroin, mad scientist, uh, gay terrorist. Is part of the attraction that you're going to get to do all kinds of things that you don't know if you can do with him? Is that, I mean, it, it's almost as if you have two different careers. You have the Amadovar career and the other career. Yeah, it's true. No, I, I don't know if that's the attraction is for the character. I, I recognize in Pedro Almodovar a real artist, somebody. I mean, his movies, and they are very radical. 
And the people actually also re- react in a radical way. You have people who love Pedro Almodovar and people don't like the Pedro Almodovar movies. But there is something that anybody can actually, they have to recognize. This is a guy with a tremendous strong personality, very unique, that never betrayed himself. He's absolutely loyal to his style. He never went and said, oh, I'm going to just change my cinema. I'm going to be a hack. Yeah, oh, no, because yeah. of money. You yeah, know? Yeah, and yeah, he received yeah. offers from Hollywood. He received offers from anybody. Never accepted that. He has been there persistently for 21 movies nonstop. And that is, in our days especially, is a virtue. So I love to be there in that space, that smell and it tastes like truth. Truth artist, you know. And then I... I understand that, you know, art in general and movies in particular, they just serve many different purposes in life. And, and, and I don't have anything to, you know, against a movie that just pretend just to entertain right. people, which is... You've made some of those. I, I made some of those, yeah. of course, because I, there are people that they love to go to the movie theaters after they've been working the whole entire week with their girlfriends or their boyfriends and have a big part of uh, popcorn and enjoy two hours of a good entertainment. And there are other people who love to go to movies just to explore about the human spirit right. and the complications of the soul and the depth of the soul of the mankind. You know, there are all of those spaces. If you don't try to just lie to the audience, uh, you're fine. Right. You know? So I have done all of those because I am an actor. And that's what I am. And I love... Those actors that in the old, old days in Spain, they used to go like the circus people. And in the morning, they do a comedy and at night, they do Shakespeare. And that's what they are. (laughs) And so I tried just to keep that in my mind. I don't want to become crazy when I talk about the creation of a career. And sometimes the creation of a career is you have to renounce an incredible amount of things that you would love to do, but your agent says, no, you have to be coherent. Really? This is what the audience is responding to beautifully. So you should go in that path. Don't leave that path. You are going to just make one break after the other. You're going to be a very beautiful career. And I don't like that. <laughs> That's their creation, your career. That's yeah. right. And I don't like that. I like to be, as yeah, I yeah. said to you, an actor. Right. And I like to play a comedy <laughs> sometimes. And I like to play to make a, a movie for kids. Sure, sure. And at the same time, I have to recognize that in Hollywood, I have a certain, I was limited in my possibilities because of my accent. And you spoke no English whatsoever when you got to Hollywood. At um, because I arrived there with 30 years old, you know. And so these are the range of possibilities that I have. I have to play with those cards. I didn't have all the range of cards in my right, hands. Right. I only can receive these 10 cards gotcha. out of the maze. So how you play with that yeah, yeah. is complicated. Yeah. <laughs> and life is changing to, at the same time. And I now my body is asking me and my mind, you know, that I would like to do movies that are more, a little bit deeper, uh-huh. that I would like to just reflect about life. You know, about relationships, about certain events. And probably Hollywood is not providing me with that. So where can I find that? I'm going to find that in England. I'm going to find that in Spain, in Europe. You know, so I am searching. I am not in a hurry for anything. Uh I've done 112 movies. I'm going to be 60 next year. Um, I'm fine. And you moved to London four years ago. Um, Yeah, I'm living in London. And I'm content. I'm satisfied. Um. Well, you may have limited what work you're doing to make it more meaningful to you and deeper and all that. But I see, looking at IMDb, you've got 
four movies in post-production, you're still working hard. Yeah. And, and The Laundromat yeah. is this movie about to come out. Oh, The Laundromat, yes. With uh, Meryl Streep. Very interesting Gary movie. Gary Oldman. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Gary Oldman and, and, and Meryl. But at the same time, we have a, a man like Steven Soderbergh behind the camera, who is a, a very interesting director. He's a terrific director. He's a guy who actually is not afraid of jump into new territories and explore and do something different. And this movie definitely is different. And it's completely the opposite of this Almodovar movie. This is not an emotional movie. This is a satire about the complicated and diabolic artifact that control taxation all around the world. Only Steven Soderbergh could could say, yeah, I'm going to make a movie about taxation. Yeah. Global taxation. Yeah. About, you know, the Panama Papers. and, uh, And the movie just laugh out of that. Yeah, I'm eager to see it. (laughs) Antonio Banderas, this has been a pleasure. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, really. Pain and Glory is in theaters starting this weekend, and Antonio Banderas' other film with Steven Soderbergh, The Laundromat, is also just out. Coming up? He just looks like an insane guy with a big smile, you know? The evolution of the Joker's face. To me, it's like the quintessential Joker. Seven-time Oscar-winning makeup wizard Rick Baker. That's next on Studio 360. Smile, though your heart is aching. Smile, even though it's breaking. Studio 360. This weekend... A comic book supervillain opens in his very own big movie, Joker, directed by Todd Phillips and starring Joaquin Phoenix with Robert De Niro. What's your name? My name's Arthur. Well, there's something special about you, Arthur, I could tell. Where are you from? I live right here in the city with my mother. She says I was put here to spread joy and laughter. The movie is Joker's backstory before he's Batman's nemesis. He's a sad guy named Arthur Fleck living this sad existence in Gotham whose one dream was to become a comedian. Uh, Murray, one small thing. Yeah. When you bring me out, can you introduce me as Joker? He fails in that dream and descends into madness and finally becomes the spectacular psycho clown killer terrorizing the city. And as Arthur Fleck transforms over the course of the movie, so does his look. I mean, it's basically a clown makeup, isn't it? White face, red nose, red lips, uh, you know, some blue you know, triangles around his eyes and a couple of little uh, red eyebrows. This is Rick Baker, one of the great Hollywood makeup virtuosos, who is here today to explain and critique the evolution of the Joker's various on-screen looks over the years that have led to Joaquin Phoenix's freaky clown-for-hire, whose face was designed by makeup artist Nikki Letterman. It's obviously supposed to be makeup because you see him making himself up, but not very well, which is kind of helps make it creepier. You know, it's a, kind of asymmetrical and smeared, and, and, you know, he's insane. So that's how an insane guy probably would do it. Rick Baker has been one of Hollywood's few go-to transformative makeup guys for 40-odd years. So many films he's worked on, such as turning Eddie Murphy into an old Jewish guy in Coming to America. What do you know from funny, you bastard? 
And several years later, turning Eddie Murphy into six different members of the Klump family for The Nutty Professor. Oh, Hercules, 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 Hercules. A job that won him one of his seven Oscars for Best Makeup. Baker's got a particular knack for otherworldly makeup creations. Lots of the aliens in the original Star Wars cantina scene, apes in Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes. His big breakthrough came in 1981, the product of a painstaking, complex, days-long shoot in which the actor David Naughton slowly and painfully morphs into a werewolf in an American werewolf in London. Jesus Christ! thereby creating the new prototype for cinematic human-to-beast transformations without any computer effects at all. You still see movies today derived from that scene of Baker's. Before American Werewolf, I, I had to try to beg people to let me do something cool. You know, even, you know, why don't I put a mustache and a scar on this guy? <laughs> you know, and, and say, no, no, no. After American Werewolf, I started getting scripts with stuff in it that were just like, how the hell am I going to do this? I mean, people seemed to think that we could do anything then. And as for the Joker? I'm obsessed with makeup and, and monsters, and, and, he, and he's one of those, you know. Baker hasn't transformed any actors into the Joker, but last year he did create a limited edition bust of the character for its owner, DC. This bulging, red-eyed, yellow-toothed, purple-skinned extreme iteration of the character. But it's not a look that he'd do for film. Um, that would be very hard to do as a, as a, as a makeup, and it would be very hard on the actor as well to perform with the teeth and the, the face the way it was. Um, if I was going to do a Joker makeup, it would probably be much more like the Conrad Veidt uh, you know, makeup, uh, The Man Who Laughs, which was the inspiration for the Joker initially. A cool-looking, you know, gaunt face with a big set of teeth, you know. <laughs> um, but I try to gear, you know, my designs are, you know, designed for a specific movie. You know, the actor has a lot to do with it, you know, the, the, the physiognomy of the actor's face, but also what the actor's willing to do, you know. Not every actor is willing to put a big set of teeth in their mouth. You mentioned um, The Man Who Laughs, mm-hmm. uh, Conrad Veidt. I want to talk about that because I wasn't aware of that really as the inspiration for the comic, right? It came, it was a 1928 silent, yeah, right? it was the inspiration for the Joker. The, the first drawings they did were based in, in the, you know, the character itself were based on Conrad Veidt. We all pretty much know those original Joker drawings from from early Batman comics, 1940, the, the white face, green hair, big red lips, giant creepy grin. But but the movie inspiration from a dozen years earlier, The Man Who Laughs, uh, was adapted, uh, I discovered, from a Victor Hugo novel uh, set in the 17th century about uh, this guy who'd been attacked as an orphan child and his face disfigured and then becomes a carnival freak, uh, performing as the laughing man. I've got a clip here. This is where Conrad Veidt's character first appears uh, as the laughing man, performing on stage and smiling his grotesque grin for this delighted, contemptuous audience. Uh, Rick, explain the look he has there. Yeah, I mean, it's just so cool. I mean, he's got just this huge grin with these crazy teeth and, then, you know, just the the angles of his face and everything about it. I mean, I just think it works so well. And Jack Pierce, who did the makeup, who was one of my first idols, he, he also did Frankenstein's Monster and the Wolfman and the Mummy and all the great classic Universal uh, characters. But 
uh, you know, he's got obviously a very light foundation on, and they definitely painted his lips to show up more. The, the greatest thing about it, I mean, are the teeth that are in his, in his mouth. And he's got a big set of teeth, but he also can do this crazy smile. I know the teeth help it because I've made teeth like this myself to try to, to get that effect. But it, it, the reality is it's a simple makeup, but it's on a, a, a Conrad Veidt had the perfect face for it. And even the hair, you know, the hair, I don't think the hair was green like the Joker's hair, but it kind of looks like the hairstyle that, the, you know, the Joker should have as well, you know, so... I mean, it's it, to me, it's like the quintessential Joker. Yeah. The backstory is that they carved up his face so that it was it was in a permanent smile, mm-hmm. and he looks a little freakish. But it's interesting; he's not. <laughs> I mean, he's not so monstrous that you would think he would work as a freak in a freak show in a certain way. Yeah, it's interesting. No, it's true. It's true, and I think you know also maybe at the time, you know, people weren't as used to seeing the crazy stuff that they see now. You know, so I'm sure this had a, a, more of an impact than it does now. But I, I you know, I never would have guessed by looking at that makeup that he was supposed to be carved up. You know, he just looks like a right insane guy with a big smile, you know. But, right. But to me, I mean, that just, I would love to see a Joker like this in a movie. So the Joker first appears on screen in 1966 on the primetime live-action uh, TV series Batman. So you watched that premiere with Adam West when you were a kid in high school in, in Southern California. What did you make of it then? I was so excited. I mean, you know, that was a great time for television for a monster kid. You know, I mean, you know, you had, you know, the monsters and the Adams Family and those kind of shows, and you know, a Batman. You know, I thought, how cool. And I remember I, I had some school function that I had to be at, and, and you know, running home to to see this new Batman TV show. And when the song came on, uh, you know, I went. What the hell, you know? And the, the fact that they were playing it so campy, you know, it just kind of pissed me off. You know, I wanted to see, you know, a, a darker, you know, uh, Batman, and that wasn't it. And they cast um, Cesar Romero, who was this late middle-aged Latin lover actor as the Joker. <laughs> Hello, kiddies. Meet the Joker. <laughs> no hard feelings. <laughs> Corny, I? To me, it was like, it, seriously, you can't shave off your mustache to play the Joker? <laughs> you know, and Cesar Romero has a mustache under this, you know, white face. You know? So describe the look that we're looking at here. It's very much the man who has makeup without the teeth. You know, I mean, he's got a white face and he's got his lips painted, you know, uh, and, without, and without the teeth and with a the mustache. <laughs> they probably use clown white, which is, you know, much more opaque white makeup that clown, clowns use, you know. But yeah, I, you know, to me, it just, you know, I wanted more. <laughs> so the next time Joker appears on screen is is 20 years later in the first of the modern Batman feature films, Tim Burton's version with Jack Nicholson, as a more or less conventional gangster Joker. Jack. Jack is dead, my friend. You can call me Joker. And as you can see, I'm a lot happier. <laughs> now, this makeup is meant to be his actual face. Uh, he, he fell into a vat of toxic chemicals and now looks this way, which is what? Uh, walk us through the evolution we're seeing now from, from 1960s TV Joker to, to Nicholson 
uh, Tim Burton Joker. The difference between what's on Jack Nicholson in, in Batman and, and compared to uh, Cesar Romero, I mean, and the, well, first of all, I should say the similarities. I mean, first of all, it's again like a clown white. He's got green hair. You know, his lips are painted red. Uh, but he's actually wearing uh, foam rubber appliances or prosthetics uh, to give him that smile look. It kind of blends into, you know, the corners of his mouth and gives him a little bit of the nasolabial fold area uh, to try to get, you know, a permanent smile without going with the big teeth. Um, and I say this all the time, you know, it's not what I would have done, you know, but in many times, you know, when I see my own movies, I go, that's not what I would do now, now that I've seen the movie, you know. But like what? What wouldn't you have done? Too much prosthetics going on here in the face? I would try to have stuck teeth in them. You know, I mean, I would have gone full Conrad Veidt on this with maybe a little, a little bit of hint of those nasolabial fold, uh, you know, smile kind of things, but not as much as this. I mean, some angles, I think it looks a little funny, you know, sticking out and kind of unnatural. This is not your favorite, but it's not your least favorite, I guess. <laughs> this is definitely a step up from the Cesar Romero. <laughs> And the next big makeup leap for the Joker uh, comes in 2008 in Christopher Nolan's, in my opinion, great version of Batman, The Dark Knight. Heath Ledger plays Joker, um, for which he won an Oscar posthumously. Well, you look nervous. Is it the scars? You want to know how I got them? Come here. Hey. Look at me. So I had a wife. He's got these smudged black eyes, but still the white face and red lips. But it's all a mess and and deliberately a mess. Clearly something the character applied, unlike Jack Nicholson's Joker, which I found very cool. Um, Describe what, from your expert point of view, we're looking at here. Well, you know, the thing was, I mean, the Joker, we never really kind of knew why he was white, you know, and, and, and like that. And, you know, I had basically like a clown makeup kind of a thing, you know, and uh, I, I always took it as it was supposed to be, you know, the, uh, a byproduct of what happened to him falling in the toxic waste kind of thing, you know, bleached his skin out. Not so much that he actually applied makeup, you know. Uh, this one, you know, is like, you know, he has supplied makeup, but it's, you know, he's insane and it's and it's uh, an insane way to apply it. And, and Heath Ledger's Joker here has some prosthetics, I guess, that scarring where his mouth was sliced open, but nothing too extreme. Yeah, I mean, that's the scar is definitely an appliance. That uh, doesn't bother me that he doesn't have the teeth because they kind of reinvented, you know, the, the smile was a you know, you know, how did I get the scar thing, you know, not, uh, you know, falling in the toxic waste. You want to know how I got these scars? My father was a drinker and a fiend. I mean, there, there was a kind of plausibility to the madness that this makeup, to me, conveyed, you know? I, I could almost imagine some crazy person in... A dark night <laughs> looking like this. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I think this was a perfect makeup for this film. And it's one that I really like, again, mainly because of Heath Ledger's performance more than anything. So then in 2016, Jared Leto steps into the role for the um, ensemble DC supervillain movie Suicide Squad. Blah, 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 blah. All of that chit chat's going to get you hurt. Oh, my God. So this Joker is more sort of a a glam Joker than the others. Um, A bit Marilyn Manson-esque. Silvery skin, tattoos, 
red lipstick and and silver caps on his teeth to to match um, the the jewelry chains he wears. What what did you think of this take on Joker? People were judging it before they saw the film, uh, and I. I, I did as well, but I actually thought, well, you know, I don't think this is a bad concept for a modern movie, a modern version of the Joker, or the fact that he's got the tattoos, he's got the grill uh, for the teeth, you know, and the, and I really like that they got this really bright color for his hair. You know? <laughs> but, you know, I think this makeup fits this film again, and that's the important thing, you know, and, and that's what, one of the things I hate about the Internet, where people will judge things before they even see the context of, of what it was made for, you know. So that's interesting. I mean, and Jared Leto does inspire a lot of um, strong feelings and ill will uh, on the Internet and elsewhere. So I'm glad to hear you're not a hater of this version. No. And I, I think for the film, I, I think it was appropriate. Yeah. So the new um, Joaquin Phoenix Joker uh, movie is so new, you've only seen the trailer. But of all the movie Jokers you've fully consumed... Your Rick Baker's favorite makeup. Well, I, I mean, it's tough. I mean, because the reality is Conrad Veidt really wasn't playing the Joker, you know. And uh, But I would vote for Conrad Veidt. Uh, I just love the look of that, the big teeth and the white face and, and the crazy hairstyle. And, and he just had a great face. But performance-wise, I mean, Heath Ledger has, has nailed it. And, and now, you know. He, he may get knocked off from uh, Joaquin. We'll see. You know. Rick Baker, I, I really appreciate this. It's been great talking to you. I've admired your work, of course, for 40 years. And uh, congratulations. And, and congratulations on the new book as well. Thank you very much, Kurt. It was nice talking to you. That book, two big, sumptuous coffee table volumes documenting Rick Baker's movie makeup career, is called Metamorphosis, and you can pre-order it now. And Joker is in theaters everywhere this weekend. In the sky, you'll get by if you smile. Through your fear and sorrow, smile. And maybe tomorrow, you'll see the sun come. Coming up... The Jackson 5's first hit single 50 years ago, listening to Michael Jackson then was a lot simpler, but also already kind of complicated. Normally, you would hear these lyrics about when I had you to myself. If a child is singing something like that, you're going to back up and say, what? Excuse me? I want you back 50 years old this week. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. This very week is the 50th anniversary of the release of the first Motown single by the Jackson 5, which hit number one, I Want You Back. It was the first of a string of number one hits over the next couple of years, all fronted, of course, by Michael Jackson, age 11. How and whether people listen to Michael Jackson music these days has become problematic. His abuse of children, depicted pretty definitively in the recent HBO documentary Leaving Neverland, made some people stop listening to his music altogether, and some radio stations stopped playing it. 
not to mention wedding and bar mitzvah DJs. But before the fall, before the rise, this week in 1969, the Jackson 5 were just this family of cute nobodies from Gary, Indiana, with this very catchy song. Gosh, you know, it's that extraordinary intro, actually. It's that piano glissando. It just explodes out of the speakers or out of your headphones. It's got one of the most indelible bass lines. It took off the top of my head, and I made the DJ play it about 18 times in a row. I still remember what side of the two LP set that that song came on. It's just so perfectly constructed. My name's Jack Hamilton. I'm an assistant professor of American Studies and Media Studies at the University of Virginia, and I'm also the pop critic for Slate magazine. I Want You Back is an incredibly historically significant song in that it introduces the world to the Jackson 5 and specifically their enormously talented lead singer, Michael Jackson. This is Melissa Weber, a.k.a. DJ Soul Sister of WWOZ-FM in New Orleans. I Want You Back is a very catchy song. Michael Jackson's voice, for one, is pure, it's pristine, and it's clear. As bright as his vocal is, the lyric is a bit dark, you know. He's yearning. I want you back. Even in his humming in those first few seconds... It's a contradiction in a way, a very interesting one of this bright melody and this bright vocal, but this lyric of desperation. Michael's voice is kind of plaintive cry, which is also very simple on one level and also complicated. My name is David Ritz, and I'm an author. It's simple in that he's a child. He's crying, and the cry is a visceral cry that you can understand in your gut, but it's also adult in the theme of the song, which is that it is a man or a man-child crying for that which he once had and no longer has. Normally, you would hear these lyrics about when I had you to myself. If a child is singing something like that, you're going to back up and say, what? Excuse me? He really conveys the sense of desperation and the sense of longing and desire and all these things that you would not normally expect for an 11-year-old to be able to get across so effectively. I think that's one of the reasons the song is is so powerful is that it's also a little bit weird. You've never heard a vocal quite like this before from a prepubescent child. The paradox is, as a child, he sang like an adult And as he became adult, he acted more and more like a child. I think it's one of those sort of mysteries that have to remain unexplained 
because if you do explain them, you drain the poetry out of them. I'm Adam White. I'm the author of Motown Sound of Young America. Hello from London. The Jacksons got to Motown by way of a guy called Bobby Taylor, who was actually a leader of a Motown band called the Vancouver's. And he and the Jacksons shared a concert bill in Chicago in 1968. He saw them and was captivated by them. He thought they were pretty extraordinary. And it was Bobby Taylor who put the brothers in his car and drove them to Detroit, where they auditioned for the Motown label. Barry Gordy, the Motown founder, wasn't actually there at the time, but the audition was videotaped. So he was sent it and he saw it and he was taken too. So it was March of 69 when they became full-fledged Motown recording artists, which is when Barry Gordy decided that since he was based in California by then, it would be the smart thing to bring these new kids out to California. The Jackson 5 were really the first major Motown act where almost all of their material was recorded in Los Angeles. So it really marked sort of the end of the classic Detroit era of Motown. You know, some haters would say, well, if you leave Detroit, good luck to you. And then they came out right away in L.A. with this big hit for the Jackson 5. The Jacksons were very capable musicians. They had been a band together performing in their hometown and in Chicago, other parts of the U.S. But the musicians that Motown chose to record the track for I Want You Back were the best musicians of their time. So for Detroit and the Funk Brothers rhythm section, you had more of that soulful grit informed by jazz. The L.A. sound, still powerful, but it had that slick Los Angeles sheen and gloss on the top. It was that polish that could benefit Barry Gordy's desire to make the Jackson 5 the next thing, and that's exactly what happened. The songwriting for the Jackson 5 at the beginning really fell to a small team, Dick Richards, Freddie Perrin and Fonce Mizell, who, by the way, were dubbed the corporation. And between them, they had this song called I Want to Be Free. Which was written for Gladys Knight. And Gordy heard it and thought it could be kind of deconstructed and reconstructed for the Jacksons. So he renamed the song, I Want You Back, and gave it to his team and told him to kind of goose it up in a sly in the family stone vein. Everyone in all facets of popular music in the late 1960s could not help but be influenced by Sly and the Family Stone. A year before, in 1968, with Sly and the Family Stones, Dance to the Music, where they're... Toward the end of the song, when Michael Jackson is singing that... And I can't sing. They go into soul scatic, which is incredible. What you have in the relationship between the corporation and the Jackson 5 
is the production team very, very much in charge? In other words, this jewel was cut before the Jacksons got into the studio. The Jacksons, of course, had to put the gleam on the jewel, but it is very much a producer-driven vehicle. It all begins here. I mean, it all begins with I Want You Back because not only did it take off, it was like a rocket ship. It caused a sort of hysteria. Here are five brothers from Gary, Indiana, ranging in age from 10 to 18. They're a sensational group. Here, the Jackson Five. So let's have a fine There was Jackson mania back then, way before... Michael struck out on his own as a solo star. You know, they had three more number one records in a row, so the first four Jackson 5 singles all reached number one. A tribute to the talent of the group, the people behind them, and Motan's savvy in working an act and knowing how to break a record. This song changed the Jacksons' lives as young people, and Michael's probably most of all. They were enormous stars, and, you know, into the early 1970s, they toured a lot. They had a television show. Here we come, the Jackson 5, heading for the Star Music Festival. That's the place. Bring her down. Land the airplane, man. Young black band getting their own nationwide cartoon TV show. No mean feat. These were kids who, from this point forward, did not really have childhoods. And I think you could argue, too, knowing that what the Jacksons' lives were like before Motown, which, you know, they had this famously domineering father who, you know, was just a real, he was a stage parent and famously quite abusive. Michael Jackson was singing with his family from an extremely young age for this taskmaster of a father who really professionalized his kids. So it's pretty clear that Michael Jackson never really had anything resembling a quote-unquote normal childhood. And look, I think what he becomes is a consequence of their success. You can't get away from that. You know, they got a very fast lesson in superstardom. Michael Jackson was someone who was very obviously deeply troubled towards the end of his life and someone who spoke openly about the troubles that he experienced with not having a childhood and being someone who really was just kind of, you know, thrust in the public eye and exploited. It's also very easy in retrospect to let what happened later color the uniqueness and the the caliber of the music they were making. But as kids of their day, they had an innocence that was genuine, it was real. And so everything that happened since, every success, every tragedy, I feel is somehow detached from that. I mean, that's what great records do in a way, which is not to say people are not uncomfortable knowing what they now know when listening to those records. In light of the allegations of the last you know, 20 plus years and of the documentary, Leaving Neverland, released in 2019, I feel some discomfort listening to some of Michael Jackson's music, particularly some of the music he made when he was older and more, you know, firmly in adulthood music that deals in some ways pretty directly with children. I don't really have a problem listening to a song like I Want You Back, partly because I love it so much, but also because it's probably one of the least complicated artifacts in Michael Jackson's catalog. 
you can't deny that the song is a classic. For one, Michael Jackson was a child when he recorded it. So if even if you had any issues with the song based on something that has been said, true or not true, at his age when he recorded the song, none of that was even a thing. So you have to take it from where it comes from, which is 1969, Michael Jackson and his brothers and Motown Records starting anew in a new place. I think by virtue of their age when that record was made, they get a pass. They do in my book. I think great music stands on its own, um, regardless of the subsequent behavior of the people involved. My thoughts are a quote from the novelist D.H. Lawrence, who said, trust the story, not the storyteller. I trust the story. I think that, you know, people need to kind of make that decision for themselves of what they're comfortable listening to. I don't blame anyone for turning off Michael Jackson's music today when it comes on the radio. But do I think his, you know, recorded catalog should never be played again or destroyed or something like that? No. This is someone whose footprint on our popular culture is just absolutely massive. It's really hard to imagine a coherent view of American popular music history really since the 1960s without Michael Jackson in it. I Want You Back was streamed in Britain 20 million times last year. There's a certain electricity about that record that defies time, but also it clearly has something that appeals to modern artists. I mean, look, Taylor Swift sang that song on her 2011 tour. They don't come much bigger than Taylor Swift. So for contemporary artists to still be drawn to the song says something. There's a Netflix TV series called Motown Magic, a cartoon series which is aimed at kids. But Ella, Motown is my best toy! You, you gotta show me who you sold them to. I have to get them back. So today's kids get to hear some of that music and some of that song and arguably will grow up and that's embedded in their consciousness too. I think they'll be listening to I Want You Back a hundred years from now. I mean, it's just one of the great songs of our musical history and it clings to you, it haunts you, it calls to you. It's a perfect recording and good music does not die. The type of power that I Want You Back achieves and how thrilling and infectious and catchy it is, it's kind of magical in that it doesn't get old. I mean, who cares what I have to say about the song? You know, let's just hear it. That piece was produced by Jenny Cataldo and BMP Audio. By the way, there are countless covers of I Want You Back, but maybe none more delightful than this YouTube video of a band in Boston called Lake Street Dive playing the song on a sidewalk. (laughs) And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. When I had you to myself. Our production team consists of Jocelyn Gonzalez, Andrew Adam Newman, Sandra Lopez Monsalve, Evan Chung, Lauren Hansen, Sam Kim, Zoe Saunders, Tommy Bazarian, Morgan Flannery. And I'm Kurt Anderson. He's very demanding, very meticulous. Thank you for listening. Now it's a much
RRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, how Maya Angelou turned the brutal racism of her childhood into a beautiful book. She identified with that caged bird with this tremendous impulse to fly, to be free of that cage. I know why the caged bird sings. The newest American icon next time on Studio 360.